I'm here today with Ben Ueda, a designer. Probably the humblest way for him to describe himself. Well, that's normally a pretty good way to start. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to start with the most uh, overly aggrandizing way to introduce yourself. I like it. You're setting expectations low so that over the course of people getting to know you better, they'll walk away with their minds blown, yeah? Possibly. Possibly. One can hope. Well, before we even get into this, I want to say something that we just had in our conversation before coming on air I thought was fascinating. You said, don't try to live your life as if it's a video game, but try to live your life as if you're trying to design your own video game. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really do like video games. I don't play them that much anymore. But I think one of the, like, video games were like the first time in my life as a teenager where I like this, I discovered the idea of diminishing returns like on my own, right? So as you like on Christmas, you get like a new video game, you're really excited, tear it open. Mm. Me and my brother would always play them together. And there's this sort of peak enjoyment, I think was getting like the first Legend of Zelda game and for like the first Nintendo, the, the yeah. 8-bit one. And I think like the most fun you're having where if they're actually measuring the dopamine in your brain would be like when you're about like half or like three quarters of the way through and you're like finally understanding the parameters and the rules and the structure of what of the tasks that you're trying to do but there's still a lot more to go the minute you end the game you have that kind of elation of like completing this difficult task but you're also kind of being like oh now everything's predictable if I do this again. Sometimes mm. they had the, the ways you could run it back and it'd be a little bit different or higher difficulty. But the minute you sort of like beat the game, then it's just the only sort of additional reason to play would be doing it in a more creative way with like one hand behind yeah. your back or with some sort of optimization in mind. Like I'm going to do a speed run and beat it as yes. fast as possible. Both of those things are less fun for me than the kind of adventure of solving it for the first time. So I think in like, it was the first time I said like, maybe I shouldn't try to win the game so fast. Now, probably advice I didn't necessarily take at like 14 or 15, but mm. um, it was the first time I became aware of that concept is like just playing and then winning then you start getting obsessed with like optimization for some other reason that's not even intrinsic to the goals of the game. And then you kind of get into the, it can start to feel like work. Or if you're trying to only beat this high score or only beat this time in a speed run, the minute you make a mistake, you might as well just start over. And I think that's like a very limiting and less fun way, way to go. So in career constructing, I often think that uh, don't focus so much on like playing and what you're going to do, but focus more as like, how am I setting up like the boundaries and general incentives for my actions to be consistently enjoyable and not be this race towards optimization where you start saying, oh, if I cut this call five minutes earlier, I could then squeeze in this other one. Or if I had a standing desk that's also a treadmill. I don't have to work out. I can get three more sort of emails sent or all those things. Those I find kind of to be thieves of joy in this kind of pursuit of optimization. And really the fun part is the, the unwinding adventure 
or something that allows for creative gameplay. It's a beautiful analogy because I love watching speedrunners. Right? Yeah. I think it scratches the itch in me where, hey, what if I could do things perfectly? Right. It's a fantasy. You get to see someone actually do it. And I don't focus as much on the other side of that, which is when a speedrunner fails, they stop the run immediately and restart because the whole point was to do it perfectly. Right. They would still beat the game. Yes. But it's not perfect. So it's not worth it. I also like, like, I find this with, uh, so as a designer and maker, I like watching craftspeople that have like made violins for like a hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. Or just only focus on leather working or blacksmithing or pottery. If you see someone at a pottery wheel, like mm-hmm. throwing ceramics, it's like so incredibly mesmerizing. And I think what you're saying about the speed run is that it's nice to have a understanding of the platonic ideal of something, yes. right? If you see someone run through Super Mario Brothers in like the fastest possible thing, you're saying like, that's the absolute best you can do. And there's a security and kind of understanding that in a very objective way. Whereas so many things, this is better than this, this restaurant's better than this restaurant, or just this movie's better than this movie. Those are all sort of subjective takes that are hard to sort of quantify. If you've been involved with something it's kind of nice to see an, obje- an objectively excellent version of that mm. being performed. So whether it's like a symphony, if you played music, or, or for, for me, sort of watching craftspeople that aren't mm. uh, sort of in design, I work with a lot of different materials. And as a maker, I build with a lot of different things. So I'm kind of a jack of all trades, expert of none. But when I watch like someone that's just really good at pottery, I'm like, wow, that's... They've done That's it. the ideal. Um, the question is, is like, does that awareness improve your own experience when you do the task at a different level with different objectives? Or does it sort of make it seem more futile because someone's done it so much better? When you design, you create, do you have a goal around trying to hit that platonic ideal? <sighs> no. Um, I'm like a very compromised designer and it didn't used to be that way. Like growing up, I grew up in a pretty banal kind of boring existence, like very Californian suburban. Hmm. Uh, I was born in Santa Barbara and then moved up north. And there was no remarkable architecture in San Inez, California. There's some cute old buildings and maybe some historically relevant things from the, the, the Spanish missionaries. But nothing like adventurous or like daring design. So I went to architecture school, I got really excited uh, because I was surrounded by people talking about architectural theory and these amazing places and places like, you know, like New York and London and all these kind of like mega cities. And I had grown up in the suburbs that all seemed very exotic and cool and exciting. And I really wanted to be one of those people that makes those kinds of enduring works of art. But at the same time, what as I got further and further through my education, what I kept like, and I went back to visit my parents and in talking to them, I just kind of said, well, like they've had like a really good life and they've never been involved with any of this stuff. Mm. And so this thing that felt so central and so important to my own identity and my own pursuit and my own ambitions, two of the happiest people that I knew, my parents had lived a pretty good existence without ever thinking about these things. Mm. 
And so then I started thinking, it's like, well, why don't they ever talk about strip malls or kind of like the boring stuff that I actually am very familiar with, right? Like uh, me and my brother used to play in like a flood control drainage ditch in our suburban housing compound, right? And we had fun. We like rode bikes. It was like a half pipe, skateboarded in it. And I was, you know, growing up, I was like, oh, if they actually made these in the parks, these would be amazing. That was something that wasn't really coming up in the kind of, high-end discourse of architectural education and so that's what sort of led me to kind of think okay I like this subject matter I like the way of thinking about the built environment Hmm. that's there's always a tangible thing but at the same time I like thinking a little bit more esoterically about building the tangible things to provide a little bit more meaning but at the same time have something that's observable to everybody Um, that's kind of the nice thing about buildings is everyone can see them and go inside but maybe people appreciate them on sort of different levels of design so that was when i started thinking it's like well i like this field of design and architecture but how do i reconcile the sort of question that it's not important even though it feels important to me and meaning important meaning that you can live a great life and never care about it and the importance to you you mentioned before to me, you found yourself in architecture almost because you didn't know what to study. And architecture felt concrete. I design buildings, people walk into those buildings. But listening to you now, it's clear that you did find a lot of meaning in it and you continued it. Yeah, I think meaning and, meaning and enjoyment is much more about upward mobility than any sort of like intrinsic connection between that individual and that subject matter. Like, I think Mm. that when you watch children play, they will keep playing the games that they find rewarding or where they see sort of improvement or they see autonomy or they see some sort of benefit. It's not that they like a particular sport or a Mm. particular activity. Like, I enjoyed playing football uh, when I was good at it. I enjoyed martial arts when I was good at it. I stopped doing those things when I realized I couldn't, progress my life more through them like I wasn't going to play in college or the pros for football not even close so at some point it built like oh do I actually really enjoy this or did I enjoy the social mobility that it offered in high school and there was real utility there so it didn't mean that I was doing it just for that outcome but that outcome was so thoroughly interwoven into it that it felt like a very rewarding thing to pursue um once I sort of stopped playing sports because I felt like they were going to start taking more from me than they were going to be giving back, that's when I started looking for something where it's like, well, what's a feel? What's that next version of, mm. of working hard towards getting better at something that will be a, a longer-term relationship than, than mm. something physically driven? And that was the kind of very rational justification for getting better at design because it felt like, there was a video game I could never beat. There's always something new to make. Technological innovation is on your side. There's always going to be new tools, whether it's 3D printers or CNC machines that can cut things or new materials to work with. And then also just new sort of social problems in the physical world to solve. So it was much saying like, huh, this is something I could do and be really excited about in my teens and 20s. And it's probably something I can be excited about in when I'm 70 or 80. So it's what interested you, design, always something to continue getting better at. 
because by its very nature, you can't ever conquer it. There will always be things that need to be made. Um, and the way I sort of look at it now is that I'll say, uh, I don't, people always ask, what, well, what style do you design? And I'm like, I don't really think of it that way because the minute you start focusing on styles, the next thing you're going to be is like some meme from like the 80s or 90s mm-hmm. or early 2000s. But the way I think of it is more like uh, the kind of challenge of making the common good and making the good more common, right? So that makes it very focused, not on trying to create this like one masterpiece physical object that represents my entire career. I don't think that physical things are that important, but I really like the process of making them because I think that's the most human sort of thing that we do. So a good example would be like, I'll look at like a habit that I have, right? And so maybe like twice a week, I'll have like eggs or avocados for, for breakfast. I'm like, this is a meal that I feel is like somewhat nutritious for me. I enjoy it. I know how to make the toast, know how to smear it, know how to make it look nice, know exactly how I like to cook my eggs. And I've been eating this for a while. I feel healthy on it. So this is my common and it's pretty good. Yeah. And then I'll think like, well, if I'm going to build a house, the ultimate luxury that I would want and I haven't quite gotten there yet would be, oh, I go into my kitchen to make my avocado toast and there's an avocado tree growing right in the kitchen. So I just mm-hmm. take that off. So that would be like the ultimate example of making the good, the, the platonic ideal of the tree ripened avocado growing right inside, don't have to step outside, mm-hmm. just pick it, go right to the kitchen island. So we would do sort of both of those things. I would make the thing I'm eating better and then also making it more available and more ready. So that's, that's the, the most grandiose way I think of design is what do I enjoy? How do I make it easier um, or maybe not easier, but how do I align my enjoyment with it with also its accessibility? Um, the thing that I sort of saw in the profession of design after starting an architecture firm was that the better and more famous of a designer you became, and we had started getting sort of magazine covers, you don't design for more people necessarily. You just design for wealthier and wealthier people, right? Mm. To design a house for $200,000 takes just as much time and attention to detail as designing a house for $2 million. You just get Mm -hmm. paid way less of a commission. So the... The design as a challenge became less about the thing I was designing at that point and much more about who I was designing for. And that's where I sort of turned to YouTube and the internet and been like, okay, I know that if I spend a career as a designer, I can make cooler and cooler things. I gain more and more knowledge. Mm -hmm. But that might not be as meaningful as designing maybe things that aren't quite the same level of excellence, but are available to a lot of people, right? It's like, what's a better movie, uh, Titanic or um, Moonlight, right? They both won Mm -hmm. Academy Awards. One's far more seen than the other. Right. And so all else things being even, kind of be more fun to be Titanic. At least if, if, if you did believe that there was an important message in that film, which I'm kind of ambivalent towards, but if you, as the creator of it, felt that like getting this out in the world was important, yeah, then 
not just sort of exercising or executing on your vision, that would be the first step, but the more people that then get to also share in that vision would be important as well. And so that's when I sort of shifted to designing on the internet and mm. vertically integrated, which ended up being a lot of fun. You talked to, because you've spoken about how you think about design, extending not just from architecture, but to physical objects to your own life. You've spoken to me before also about designing your own death. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's not like something I'm like intentionally focused on, but I think it's like it's good to be a little bit morbid. I don't know. I do like uh, Ryan Holiday's books, and he always sort of espouses the, the Stoic philosophy mm-hmm. of like having a momentum mori and all those things. So I do think like contemplating mortality is a general... I find it helpful for being nicer um, and as like a, a practical reason for not eschewing the lack of efficiency and being kind, mm-hmm. um, which I think is something that I've, I've seen entrepreneurs feel pretty comfortable doing uh, uh, often. So one, I, don't, I enjoy contemplating. I think it gives life a little bit more meaning. Um, I think it's like I met this the, this this group in Boston was it was actually calling they were basically creating like a Facebook type thing I think it was called like Death Book or something mm. and I remember thinking it was pretty intriguing because it was basically like a journaling app that slowly builds out your like plan for your funeral wow. um, and it's like being like oh I want to spend I want you to spend this much of my money on this and I want this music playing and it was like you build out like almost like a wedding registry. Uh, site but for your death um, I did think that was intriguing I also think again like contemplating what we often think of as like the worst case scenario is a great way to kind of yeah. remove its ability to cause you a lot of anxiety but um, I wouldn't say I'm designing it but uh, I think it's worth giving thought I find it interesting because I've always thought I think about death sometimes Right. And sometimes I'm like, this is good. Meaning requires a good ending. I always look at, I compare Western comics like DC with like from Japan, like anime and manga. And I far more enjoy anime and manga because when a series starts, you know it's going to end. Versus in the Western world, Superman will never die. <laughs> so it's hard to find stories that carry emotional heft because he will always be okay eventually at the end of it. And so part of me, when I think about you saying, hey, there's a certain sort of heft, you know, the story is going to end, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, yes, this story will end. And that's why what I do in it is special. But another part of me is like, nah. <laughs> so yeah. this, I think TV has exposed what you're sort of describing, right? Mm-hmm. So you take a show like Friends or The Office where there's a ton of episodes and a lot of people have watched a lot of those episodes multiple times, right? So there's a strong emotional connection, but it's much more familiarity than it is through the sort of, I would argue, than through the actual storylines of the characters mm-hmm. themselves. Where you take a show that has a much more dramatic character arc, like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, where it's, the stakes are much higher. Mm. I would imagine that if you're monitoring people sort of, uh, you put the little brain plug in yeah. things and monitoring their heart rate, when they're watching a show like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad for the first time, they're 
biological markers are probably changing. Their adrenaline is going up. They're anticipating this person could yeah. die. They don't know that. That's not happening with, I would say, them watching the average episode of Friends or The Office. But there's such, those are such efficient models that were so sustainable. They very well probably created stronger and more indelible emotional connections, not between the story, but between the characters themselves. Mm. So just the sheer familiarity like really built up this like deep connection between these characters and the fan base. And I, I thought about this a lot when I sort of talked to some of my other entrepreneurial friends. And I think entrepreneurs can often sort of think very cynically and start to see the transactional nature of all sort of human relationships. Yes. And that can very quickly become a reason to sort of bottom line human interaction. Hmm. Because even like parents and kids, they're still, uh, and I see it with my siblings and how the various sort of like drama or parental squabbles and stuff that we have, even as a very close family, there's still a transactional nature even between people that love each other, whether yeah. they're a married couple, father, son, et cetera, et cetera. There's kind of, hey, if you do this, I'm kind of going to do this. And if you start to do this, this changes things a little bit for us. But what I would sort of use uh, the kind of TV shows that aren't necessarily cons considered like critical masterpieces as like a lesson is that longevity can actually turn something that's pretty mediocre into something pretty profound and beautiful, right? Like, mm -hmm. so transactional, if there's transactional aspects to all human relationships, well, then shouldn't we bias towards long-term sustainable transactional relationships? Because those tend to be the people that you fall in love with uh, and you really care about much more than, whereas the short-term transactional interactions often feel kind of gross. Mm, the very longevity of the characters in a show like The Office ha right. has meaning and virtue in itself because it helps smoothen the concept, oh, it's transactional to right. its longer term. So I'll find it like the, the more I do things, the more I'll sort of see how hard things are and it can lead towards sort of a cynical outlook, right? And it's hard to just sort of sweep away a cynical observation that's been proven to you through your lived experience, mm -hmm. right? You get screwed over by a business partner, investors kind of don't really live up to their side, et cetera, right? Like things can go wrong yeah. and you can do that. And so it can start to build mistrust for all those things, which can lead you to be a little bit more cagey, a little less kind, a little less thoughtful, or even just like less funny because you're taking things so seriously. Yeah. But you can also just sort of shift it around and be like, well, all these things way, way may be happening, but all that I really have to optimize for is incentivizing people to work with me for longer. And if it goes a long time, so if someone, uh, if you work with a freelancer for like, I worked with this one freelance uh, graphic designer for like nine years. Yeah. And it's like, she's not an employee. She works voluntarily and each project we, kind of do it, but we have to really like each other to have that yeah. non-hierarchical long-term relationship. Yep. So we're really good friends as a byproduct of sort of like working and collaborating together. Um, and we wouldn't have become friends if it wasn't for the transactional na nature of sort of pay for work or sort of like yeah. shared interest in certain design projects. That's all transactional. But the maintaining of that for a really long time is incredible. Um, and yield something really important. 
So yeah, it's like you can be cynical, but then like you don't have to be like a Pollyanna or like a goody two shoes and you can be kind of have dark and cynical observations, but turn them towards a productive and really positive and optimistic yeah. response. Transactional is not necessarily bad. No. It can be part of something more. Right. I mean, I like that. think about like people love their dogs and think about how like they, mm-hmm. not that we should think of humans as like training dogs, but it's like it is, you, you train people and, uh, or yeah, like when I watch like a really good dog trainer, it's all through this kind of like systematic yeah. creation of expectations and stuff. Reward and punishment. That. How familiar cards. how familiar are you with this? I've noticed a lot of card games. And I've been intrigued by the card games because I mean it's such a clever business device, right? Like I think like Cards for Humanity just basically prints money. Um so I am generally for kind of like social catalysts and that seems to be what there is, but I'm not familiar with these sort of rounded cornered red so, cards. <laughs> first of all, Cards Against Humanity made so much money that every year, I don't know if you remember, they were called in troll activities Yeah, where I think one year they asked for you to donate money to them so they could put it in a giant hole and just burn it. <laughs> sort of a little bit of a statement. Like, please, we're asking you to give us money. We're actually not going to do anything. We're going to put it in a hole and burn it. And of course, people actually did. Something refreshing about that honesty, right? Second, to your point, yeah. And this actually dovetails with your insight around transactions. Cards are forced interactions in a way. Games are, hey, if you agree to play this with me, we're going to interact in ways that aren't totally organic, but something meaningful can come out of it. And so the concept behind these, it's based off a study done by the New York Times where they looked at randomly selected pairs of people And they went through questions around vulnerability and reciprocity, the concept being, hey, relationships are built when I share something that's a little vulnerable about me, and instead of slapping it down, you share something back. At the end of the study, they found many of these pairs of individuals became friends, and one pair bent, they did, in fact, end up getting married. Mm. So it's like that that, uh, Maria Abramovich art installation where she would just sit at the table and stare at people, (laughs) and people would take turns to kind of do that, but... This is actually interjecting a structured uh, way to engage yes, rhetorically. It's a framework. There's three levels of questions. Level one questions are asking the person to consider something about their partner. Level two questions are more reflections on yourself. And level three are between the two of us together. And to your point, it actually starts with eye contact. Mm. So we're going to look at each other deep into each other's eyes. And the first person who looks away or just said this isn't going on interminably between people who are comfortable with intimacy, the first person who blinks, they're going to, in fact, draw the first card. Does that sound good? We've been doing it this whole time. Uh, you blinked. I did blink. <laughs> so here we go. Level one. We've done a few face-offs. So. What do you think I'm most likely to splurge on? Well, I know this answer because I'm sitting in this really cool house that's the carrot house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so probably something that you could have a tangible and communicatable path to justify the utility of that expense, right? And... I think this is like one of life's great 
joys, and I do this all the time, is I'll see like a video and somebody's yeah. using an industrial tool, like a giant chainsaw. And I'm like, I don't know what I would use that for, but I really want it. <laughs> and then I start designing things in my head that would justify me getting the chainsaw. Yes, That's how I splurge. And so my guess would be this, this is a really cool house that we're in. Uh, in like a cool area too. So I would say the clearest example that I've seen would be this house. Um, knowing the sort of broad categories that you fit in and as a startup founder guy, you're probably a lot of your focus and a lot of your motivation for all aspects of your life is aligned through the curation and growing of this entity this will be the thing that people identify you for this period of mm -hmm. your life for good or for bad, no matter That's how right. it goes. So I'd imagine a lot of the splurging at the most extravagant levels would be around sort of things that you can justify through that, but also through things that feel like that process is going safer. So two thoughts to that. The first is, yes, for myself, I always think through what's the justification in fact, I don't think I can splurge on something if I don't see a justification behind it. I feel guilty. So in a similar vein to this house, which is not only cool, but has a lot of business value, even things I purchased for myself. So I took acting classes last month just for funsies. And it was so delightful. And I wish that I could do it totally just in the pursuit of trying something new. But in the back of my head, I'm like, no, 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 I need to justify this because it helps me become a better podcast host. It helps me speak better. It helps me pitch better. It's going to make sense. Or a couple of years ago, my co-founder and I, we made a trip down to Tulum. And the only reason I went on it is because in my head, I justified it. I'm like, well, there are several creators that I'm trying to build business and personal relationships with who I know are going to be in Tulum at the same time. And in fact, one of our investors, Sam Colder, we made that happen because of that trip down to Tulum. Now, it's precisely because I can't help but do anything without justifying in my head. The gifts I appreciate the most from others are the ones that are completely useless and sentimental and whimsical. Right. Sometimes I've been with previous romantic partners who try to buy me practical things like an umbrella You're like, no, or socks I got or a wallet. The, I got the practical things <laughs> on lock. Exactly. I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to buy me something that's incredibly useless. And that's why it's valuable and special because I never would have gotten it myself. Right. So I think the, the question then becomes is what's the point of diminishing returns for justification, right? So it's kind of like I'll be talking to my sister who I, is my business partner and who I work with. I'll be like, I think we should get this. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, well, you know, because we could use it for these things. And she's like, yeah. She's like, I'm already sold, Ben. I sold. And I'm like, and, you know, if you really think about it. <laughs> and it's like, so I'm way overdoing it, right? But at the same time, there's a reason why I'm trying to overdo it. Because I've mm -hmm. also seen a lot of startups where people don't question those things. And then it becomes mm -hmm. like that kind of free association. And that's how you end up with like, a goat in the office because wouldn't it be cool if we had just like a pet running around yeah. and like oh wouldn't that make great content and you start getting these like really extravagant and indulgent things that are where those kind of that so i think it's like coming up with like a good shorthand for i'm gonna justify this yes. what's the point of diminishing return <laughs> and uh uh 
what are the categories where that point of diminishing returns, the bar becomes a little higher? Well, I kind of love, you've just sort of described the new litmus test, the goat in the office, yeah. right? You say you yourself, you also think a lot about, I want to make sure I can justify this. Say one day you buy something ends up being the goat in the office. How does that feel? Have you done this before? <laughs> I do it with tools and materials where I'll like see an article and I'll just like be like, I have this idea, I'm going to forget it. Like I have to go out and order this stuff or it'll be like, I'll be up like later than I should be kind of looking on my laptop and I'll like start ordering stuff from Amazon for like future projects. Um, so I have a lot of things in my workshop and that I purchased a year ago that I still haven't used yet. And that's not an efficient process for a designer or for running a business, mm. but it's the right amount of quirky indulgence um, that I can justify because there's always sometimes yeah. where it's like I'll be walking by that one material um, like a case I bought this like space age polycarbonate panels that they use for making greenhouses and it's like super lightweight and really strong yeah. and I just I bought it because I just thought it was cool but then eventually I walked by it one day I'm like oh I know exactly what I'm going to make out of it and then it turned out really well and 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 it worked out so it's like there wouldn't have been that spontaneous moment there. Now, where I think justification becomes really dangerous is you're not really sort of factoring in the counterfactual, right? So sure, I can post-rationalize why it was so smart that I bought this thing and let it sit there because otherwise that idea wouldn't have happened. But if that thing wasn't sitting there, something else would have been there too and I'm not really factoring mm. that in. But it's an interesting concept where the work that you do is dependent on you being the best version of yourself. And if something, what does it mean to be indulgent? If it makes you feel better, that puts you in a better state of mind. That is a true statement, but it's exactly how people become huge entitled at the same time, right? Like, and both mm. those things can be true. That can both be sure. a valuable, smart way to approach things. And so when you're going down that route, that route, totally valid to do so, but you want to have people that you can trust to being like, I'm doing this because I'm important to this business or this operation. Yeah. My performance is really important. But if I start becoming a dipshit about this huh. and about my own importance, please check me on it. And, you know, we have a trusting relationship where you can do it. Because that's no, like, none of these, like, stories you hear about, about sort of a celebrity terrible person. Like, there was a bunch about, like, Ellen DeGeneres or, oh, like, so J-Lo many. or something, right? James Corden and so on. Right, yeah. right. Like, those stories, and I don't know if they're true or not, but they could be true. And the person that's sort of doing these things could have a totally plausible mm -hmm. and in their own brain sort of justifiable path towards that entitlement. Because mm -hmm. they're thinking, I work so hard. I did do these things. Mm -hmm. I struggle. I, I slept on the sofa. I did all these sacrifices. And then I did this. And this only would have happened if I did this. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you should, you should be comfortable with that kind of like uh, indulgence and a life of austerity, I think, is worth contemplating but not necessarily living but uh just make sure you have a good like like speed check uh yeah. monitor to stop this goat so like you don't that. become a tyrant james <laughs> let's do another question how about this time you pull let's do uh let's pull level two level two i think we're ready oh if it's a wild card you can pick a wild different card. one yeah the wildcard uh, cards are usually like get out and like dance or something. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm okay on that. Oh, this is a good one. 
What are you more afraid of, failure or success, and why? I remember, and I promise I'll answer the question, but when I asked you this, <laughs> I was talking about, yeah, I do fear failure, right? And that's why I took such a long time, relatively speaking, to start my own company, right, with my co-founder, because I've been following this really safe, certain path. And even though I really wanted to create and do something on my own, I was so afraid of it flopping that it wouldn't work. And I remember you said something really interesting. You said, for yourself, you think less about when you're going to do something new and risky. It's less about the fear of failure. It's more the fear of can I explain this <laughs> to the people I care about and to myself in a way that makes sense? Yeah. The, there's glorious failure and there's like humiliating failure, right? So, and you want glorious failure, not yeah, humiliating. Right? Like there's heroic failure. I mean, like the Rocky movie is all about that, right? Like he loses the fight in mm -hmm. the first movie, but it's in such a glorious manner that who cares? So one, I think... Uh, I, to be the most honest thing is like I'm not really as scared of failure I'm scared of presenting the appearance of failure much more than I am a failure itself presenting the appearance of failure yeah like I, I would definitely not want people I went to high school with to look at me like wow that guy's like a total failure mm. um, because then if they're thinking that it wasn't glorious right right so um but I also think like I wouldn't say it's a strong fear because I think it's like pretty easy thing to mitigate against. Yeah. Um, I think where the the success thing on a, on the surface, right? Like, how can you be scared of success? Yeah, I think what is actually scary about success is the lack of satisfaction. As so, the more you succeed, theoretically, you want to keep trying new things you set the bar higher and sure. the bar higher and i think the scary part of a upward mobile or upwardly mobile trajectory is is the satisfaction for each level commensurate with the difficulty increase mm, right diminishes yeah mm. yeah or, or am i in a hedonic treadmill of like diminishing returns and life is just going to get harder and with less of the satisfaction so i remember like when I hit like 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, it was one of the, my most fun years being a content creator. When was this, by the way? Oh, it was a long time ago. I've been doing this for a while. Probably like seven or eight years ago. Okay. Maybe like seven years ago. So I hit that, and it was so much fun because it was an indicator that this endeavor wasn't going to be a failure. Mm. 100,000 subscribers at that time was about when I could sort of really support myself full-time, live a really not an extravagant lifestyle, but a very comfortable financial lifestyle. The business was only going to, you know, the subscribers were going up to 100,000. Yeah. It wasn't like they were coming down from a higher number. So things were directionally in the right way. I just felt like, huh, I enjoy this. Mm. I could probably do this indefinitely. And that was like a really joyous, safe, secure, and moment filled with gratitude. One of the least fun years was hitting uh, a million subscribers because mm. to sort of do that, I was sort of like overextended, taking a lot of projects. I was also just less excited about the general sort of growth of YouTube and I was trying to do bigger side projects and all these things. 
the overextension uh, was the sort of thief of enjoyment because something that's fun, like it's really fun to make and design something if you have like four or five days to do it. If you have one day to do it with the same expectations, it suddenly feels like a stressful, burdensome task. Yeah. Cooking for yourself is great when it's just like conversation, having a glass of wine, everyone's hanging out in the kitchen around the island and you're just slowly preparing food, you're catching up each other's days. Yeah. That task of food preparation is a joyous one of also social interaction. Mm. When it's rushed and compressed, it's terrible. So, But when I look at those two years, one hitting a much more significant and milestone of a million subscribers versus 100,000, the 100,000 year was happier. So there's a lot of good years in between, but now it's like, oh, well, why was that one happier? And it's really that mm-hmm. as long as I feel some progress, uh, a good sense of security, which removes the things that can erase happiness yes. in the form of stress and anxiety, then the speed of progress doesn't matter as much as the existence. And once you've removed or once you have the existence of some tangible sense that tomorrow will be better than today, you can have a lot of flexibility on adjusting how how much better or how fast you're right. getting towards that better. Then it's just like if you remove thorns in your side in the form of stress and anxiety, success is not very scary at all. The problem is when you try to get the velocity of success at such a point that you're saying, I'm going to withstand these really like emotionally traumatic and, and physically exhausting things to get it. Yeah. So success, not scary. The things that we find ourselves tempted to do that we know are bad for ourselves for a success, that's really scary. Is there anything right now that you are afraid or worried about? Yeah, responsibility in general. Um, like the, I'm doing less of the sort of content side over, or over the last couple of years, I haven't been as focused on content because I'm working mm-hmm. on some big real estate development projects. And when I make a YouTube video or a design, the stakes are so low. I'm not trying to always turn the things into a product. It's just like, hey, I think this is cool. The video flops, no big deal. It's something I made for myself Mm -hmm. and it's not going into production where other people's money is on the line. I think the minute you get into sort of, uh, whether it's through previous tech sort of startups that where I went out and raised money from investors or sort of real estate stuff, that sort of fiduciary responsibility of making projections right when you're pitching investors you're presenting them a future that has to be exciting yes. and is by by the function of it being a presentation is optimistic and forward uh, looking and smart yeah. right they're literally trusting your vision of the future and giving you large sums of money to go yes. make that physically happen and so i think any time where you're uh, you're forced to sort of look at you're optimistic and forward thinking. And even if you do do all the due diligence, but you're like your best ideas in a way that presents them grandly and productively. Mm. That's like saying like a New Year's resolution of I'm going to work out every single day. (laughs) (laughs) And become jacked. (laughs) So it can lead to great results because it does challenge you and it does create a certain level of accountability, but it does come with anxiety and some sleepless nights and some, some, some feeling of, did I bite off more than I can chew? And so that responsibility you feel, you mentioned focusing more on real estate projects. So 
beyond just the YouTube video, now there's like, I have partners. I need to be able to perform and do this well. You yeah. Know? I get that. I Even for myself, when I go and pitch and raise, when I've raised money from angels, other creators, in fact, and when I've spoken with them, I've actually gone at lengths to say, hey, most likely this won't work. And I get a lot of confusion <laughs> because, and we have many great creator investors, right? Graham Stephan, Alex Botes, Sam Colder, Ludwig, Josh Richards, sort of a Jared Leto, sort of a who's who across many different types of creators and entertainers. And it's always a little bit jarring to see how they react. I'm like, most likely this will fail. And they're like, you don't believe in this? Like, why are you pitching me something you don't believe in? I'm like, no, 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 no. I believe in this. I'm devoting years of my life to making this happen. I just want you to know, though, that the odds are against us. I believe conditionally on me being me, this will succeed. But I want you to know the high risks of when it might not. And I realized that doesn't actually work because what I'm trying to do is have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> or I'm trying to be like, no, I truly do believe this is going to be huge. But, oh, hey, like FYI, it might not work and don't be mad at me if it doesn't because I told you up front this might fail. And I've realized that doesn't work because people will focus on one or the other. In their head, it's either you think it's going to work and I expect it to work or you think it's going to fail and then like, why are you even doing this? I see what you're saying, how you're trying to present sort of both sides, yeah. right? You're trying to explain the magnitude of how difficult yes. starting a company, the reality that the majority of them do not succeed, they fail. Um, even some of the ones that appear to succeed have more of like a gentleman's agreement to kind of like some sort of acquisition that's maybe sub previous valuations. But it looks like it's but it looks like oh we exited right yeah. like um, so that's that makes sense. But I, I do think there actually is a way to sort of do this right, and I think actually the world of like sports betting does this really well, right? So mm. they'll say that. The odds. This team, right, the odds. So I found in when I'm communicating, real estate stuff tends not to be that risky. Like the downside is like break even mm. and the upside is not not like a tech company with right. like you know, 10x, but it's like yeah. could be like, you know, 20 to 30% IRs or something. Mm -hmm. So, but with like, with with tech or some sort of startup, I always present it as sort of like the odds, right? Like, yeah. like the average case would be we have like a one out of 10 chance of succeeding because of these specific circumstances. I think we're much more like a 50-50 chance, but the returns are way better than 50-50. Yeah, that's so, a good way of doing it. And then I set sort of indicators for um, what they should be looking at from my behavior to sort of get in the sense of how it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your other point of glorious failure you previously, we had been discussing how we want to die, right? And I mentioned I'd like to pass away super high on drugs because I've never done that before. And your answer was far more interesting and glorious. Well, I've done <laughs> a lot of drugs, so, like that's, uh... <laughs> so... That's not different for you, but you're, yours is like freezing. And I, I thought about it. I think, I think you've inspired me too. It's okay to fail, but to fail gloriously in pursuit of something bigger. Right, so I think freezing would be a good way to go. Freezing to death. From what I understand, you kind of like fall asleep and your your blood circulation is just slowing and slowing and slowing and you just feel like kind yeah. of heavy and sleepy. But it's, it's the implicit, why are you freezing? And right. that's what's interesting. Right. And maybe when I'm 80 years old, instead of trying to go do a lot of drugs, I'll try and climb Everest. Exactly. And then 
the bonus, right? So one, like you could freeze to death doing something like magnificently adventurous, right? Like diving off of a glacier or ice climbing or something really cool. You get buried in an avalanche, you freeze to death. But on top of that, there's the outside chance, who knows, a couple hundred, couple thousand years from now, somebody digs you up and then they have the technology that revives you because you're frozen. You're not, you know. I'm so curious, Ben, if this is how you've constructed your life where when you do fail, it's glorious and there's a little loophole that actually ends up helping you. Somebody has to find a body. Yes. And that is like, and this would be my biggest, if you die of like a drug overdose, right? Let's say you just did so much Molly, like your heart just literally exploded. There would certainly be like pretty high dopamine levels leading right up to that. But someone's going to find you in like not a sort of glamorous state. You're going to be all sweaty. You're going to smell better. You probably like evacuated your bowels right as you died. Like, It's just, it's going to be like a burden. Some Also, people don't like cleaning up after other people's indulgences. Mm. So in like the, like, we like to see people having a good time. We don't like to see them having a good time at the expense of other people having a shitty time. Yeah. So it's like seeing people have like joy that costs no other people anything is like a great thing. And if you dislike that, then you are the truest definition of a hater. But having worked, had pretty much every service industry job in my life, it's so great to see people having a great time. It's so ugly to see people having a good time at other people's expense. Yeah. I really like this. I think the new mantra I'm going to follow, at least for now, is to sally forth and succeed or fail nobly. Yeah. Yeah. And don't don't leave a mess, right? Yeah. Like... Yeah, the the thoughtful the the thoughtful end that is like clean and tidy. I like that. Let's do. A, I'm going to do another level two, and after this, we'll go to level three. Sounds good. Ooh, what has been your earliest recollection of happiness? So earliest in memory in general is uh, sitting on my grandfather's porch playing with a plastic typewriter. And I remember the sort of haptic feedback of this like plastic typewriter's keys and what it sounded like and what my grandfather smelled like, which was cigarettes. He smoked cigarettes for 80 years and lived to be like 104. So um, probably lived to be 120. But, you know, Japanese people (laughs) pretty good with longevity. So I don't remember emotional state, but that's like earliest sort of memory. How old were you? I think I was like two. The question I sort of have about it is I also saw a photo of that. So uh. I don't know. How, obviously, in the photo, I can't remember. I think my only real memory is what the plastic typewriter toy sounded like when I hit the keys. So it's the earliest memory. It was, there's a very tangible thing, which I don't think just got interpreted out of nothing. But I think seeing the photo of us together on the, the the deck or the front porch sort of triggered that thing. So that's the one I've got given the most thought to. Um, I think other ones were, I'll do one that wasn't necessarily the most uh, or the happiest, but one of the most important and empowering ones is, I think I was around like nine or 10 and my parents got me and my brother a bandsaw for Christmas. So it was like a real power tool for cutting stuff and my parents were always really good at giving us a lot of freedom and a lot of uh responsibility they let us play with things that were relatively dangerous um but gave us good instruction on how to use it safely but they just pressured us to have like no 
you're nine. You have good hand-eye coordination. You can use a power tool. Go for it. Shut like, things up. This, will, this could cut your finger off, but don't do that, right? Like, um, And that was like a really, yeah, you know, it was like the first, it was a tool at an age where being able to use an adult tool was a huge social status advantage in the neighborhood for all the other kids. Because <laughs> if all the other kids were given like plastic toys and we had actual power tools. When we all got together to make forts, we could make better forts. Oh, yeah. We could make better wooden swords. We even made crossbows, bow and arrows. So that one tool really upped our our currency in the world. So that was a pretty early memory where I sort of realized that like, oh, adult things that give you capabilities are way more fun than toys that don't yeah the ability to actually create and make your point on the typewriter too memory is malleable studies have shown when we remember we're not retrieving a certain file we reconstruct it each time and in fact it's really easy to implant false memories in people they've done interviews where they'd ask people like oh ben remember that time you're like five years old and you went to the walmart supermarket the wegmans and you got lost and your mom couldn't find you and the first time you asked they're like no no absolutely not and then you ask him like Three months later, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, maybe. Because the mind confuses the recency of which they thought about this with, oh, it must have actually happened. And so when you share, even when you described, I was taken back. I just picture you there, two years old, on the porch, your grandfather smelling of smoke, smelling of the earth. You have your little... T- yeah. I'm like, oh, that seems very plausible. Yeah, I and I feel like I can remember like wearing the diaper, like a crinkly diaper, too, or, wow. or like... But like that's not a real memory. It's like some yeah. fragment of an impression. So I'm sure there's some sort of real encoded impression. Mm. I don't think it's actually like a narrative memory in my head. Yeah. I like that. Let's do uh, let's do level three, I think. Okay. Let's do it. We're right there at the end. What do you think our most important similarity is? Let's see, we've talked for, I think, like three or four times over the course of two years, three years. Yeah, three years. Kind of remarkable, honestly, to finally get to meet you in person. I feel grateful and honored. Same. I can go first on this. I think it would be temperament. Um, I can't imagine you yelling and screaming at people that you work with. And that's something I've never done. Um, So I would say that that sort of uh, that sort of even temperament to kind of like absorb. Now, in my experience, that often is... uh, a result of sort of internalizing too much, right? Like sort of mm-hmm. being the the sort of point of absorption for the the scary things that are happening and not immediately translating it to everybody else. Right. Um, whereas I think sometimes if you can be a more uneven temperamented person and just immediately something bad happens to you, you just and release share it with everybody. Um, so yeah. I would say that there's, a, a really good part to that, but probably a little bit of, uh, of, 
of reliance on your own ability to absorb things. I think that's right. And I especially think as entrepreneurs and founders and creators, we also have a responsibility where when bad things happen, we have to take that in and sit with it because there are others depending on me. Yeah. And I can't, I don't have that same luxury of releasing. I would also add what I see in you and what I try to cultivate in myself is a considering mind. Mm. Listening to you, you think very deeply and deliberately about how you've lived your life, why you do the things you do, and what's the right way to go about things. I admire this. I try and do the same, right? I wasn't kidding. I think that's something I'm going to remember to live and die nobly. To fail is okay. It's even better if it's glorious, right? Yeah, I think the you can have a really elaborate and beautiful justification for a why in your life that doesn't have to have anything to do whatsoever with optimization. Yes. And so I I I love this when sort of designing a home, right? Like it is not optimal to have an avocado tree growing in your kitchen, but at some point in my life I'm going to have that. This year I'm probably going to implement chickens and I'm working on a design for a chicken coop where I can just reach from my kitchen window and get the eggs out but still keep the chicken poop and the smell far away from like the oh, nice the best windows. Of both worlds, yes. But even like a simpler thing is like so the new house I'm building right now, it's not an extravagant house, it's, but it's a really yeah. cool house and there's a lot of sort of weird things that are just exactly what I wanted. And I don't think they're optimal and I wouldn't suggest everybody else having building their house this way, but it's like I entertain probably like once every two weeks, have like a group of people Mm -hmm. over for dinner. Um, And so I have putting in two dishwashers. Will I use the second dishwasher all the time? No, I'll probably only use it once every two weeks. But what is nice is my day-to-day sort of routine of just like my household and like, you know, eating and doing stuff very casual that's the 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 90 likely scenario right it's just that day-to-day sort of mm-hmm. life um but this sort of entertaining of having guests over dinner party for six to eight is also a regular occurring event that isn't quite day-to-day but you know every other week so i can have like having a second dishwasher costs about another $2,200 to the total construction cost of the Mm. house. But if it was just a normal cabinet in the place of that dishwasher, it would still be like $200 or $250. So it's a $2,000 delta. But now I have an extra cabinet where I can store all the dishes that I use particularly for entertaining. So the complete set of like... I like that. For six to eight people to, to set up all the... Uh, the dishes all stay in that one dishwasher. So basically it's a cabinet for ceremonial use and then they get stored Uh in the place where they're also cleaned. So I never have to unload that dishwasher. It just goes to the table, back into the dishwasher, hit the button, and I'm ready to entertain again. So it's like, that's like, it's, it's like, again, it's like something where it's like, I don't think that's like an optimal way that I would say every house should have this. So here's 10 things that everyone should do it. But it's like, there's probably better places I could use that money, but I haven't found them. And I'm like, it's it's justifiable enough to do it. I like it. In a way you're describing deliberately non-optimal. Right. 
But it's the deliberateness that makes it special. You've chosen via that to prioritize something more important than the peer optimization, which for you is like you want to be able to host with friends. Yeah. Yeah, I think opt- optimization is like one of those things in efficiency. They are, you can't ignore them completely and be successful in anything. But they can also just strip away joy, nuance, creativity, and so many things that are really good because they demand a empirical answer that's mm. like quantifiable and they lead towards a prioritization of the quantifiable, not necessarily the most enjoyable. I like that. On you? We'll do a couple more. All right. Which, which number? Number three. Okay. Okay. No, this one's terrible. <laughs> we'll do a different one. Oh, yeah, it's a wild card. The wild cards are all consistently terrible. Uh, all right. Feel free to choose a different one. Yeah. Too, yeah. A little too self-aggrandizing. <laughs> <laughs> please, please. How would you describe me to a stranger? Humble, self-aware, deliberate. Mm. It's funny, but I teased you a little for describing yourself as a designer, but it's really excellent because when I think of design, it's about trying to construct something in a way that achieves the goals of what you want. And I think that requires not only the thoughtfulness on what are the goals here, but also the know-how of how to accomplish those goals. And I see that in you and how you talk about not just your projects, but your entire life. <laughs> yeah, the, the goal is the interesting thing. It's like uh, the only like real goal is to have a little bit more optionality and to hmm. generally head in a direction. Like there's very few sort of destinational goals that I want other than the avocado tree in the living room. I love, and the, and next the, time I see the, you, yeah. I'm going to ask what's been no, the progress toward that. That's going to be the next house, right? So I'm yeah. going to be I'm building a house in Joshua Tree, California right now. This is going to be like the kind of home for the next like four to five years. And then eventually I'll do like, I want to do like a full sort of like farm to table ranch wow. and stuff in a, in a more, like Joshua Tree is fun because the climate is so extreme and it's always sunny. You can yeah. always be working outside, but it's hard for growing things and things like that. And then also with the climate change trends, I don't think it'll be like the forever kind of place. So, um, but the next house after Joshua Tree will be the the avocado. I tree see. House. I love the fact that you've already planned out beyond four or five years. Like Ben, for me, beyond four there, or five years, I might as well be non-existent. It's, it's not plans. There's no like direct line <laughs> of action to make those things. It's right. like it's a it's a comfortable plan, right? It's like thinking like, in general, like this will probably happen and then this will probably happen and stuff like that. So it's observational planning, not like calendar planning, which I'm not very good at. But um, yeah, it's uh, as long as I'm heading in the right direction where uh, I still enjoy the work yeah. and I'm getting better at it. Like I always tell people, uh, I go like these like uh, 
I go to these conferences that are particularly for content creators that mm-hmm. are like woodworkers or makers or welders or or some sort of craftsperson or home builders. It's like its whole like kind of niche thing. Yeah. It's like a surprising, like a very lucrative because like the advertisements are oh, so yeah. valuable. If you're like influencing somebody's <laughs> like selection of their roof, that's it's a huge purchase. That's a lot more right. That's like you're you're influencing. $30,000 worth of commerce. Whereas if yeah. you're, or if you push someone towards like a mortgage, that's a huge deal. Whereas if you're, you know, another direct to consumer item, you have to sell a lot of t-shirts to, to right. create that. For a single mortgage. Yeah. So as long as like the directionality of having more creative freedom, still enjoying the work and doing that. But the thing I always tell other people is like the only, it doesn't get better than the point where you're paying your bills and able to save some money. So that means like financially you're going in the right direction and you're going to be wealthier tomorrow than you are today, right? doesn't matter if it's making a million dollars a year or making a hundred thousand dollars a year. As long as like directionality, your bills are less than what you're making, you're going to be better off financially next week. Two is, uh, so if you have that, um, and then on top of that, you're getting better at your direct craft. doesn't mean if you're, the rate of that improvement doesn't yeah. matter. But as long as you're better at woodworking or better at welding or better at editing videos next week than you were, are today, also directionally mm. in the right way. And then if you're having fun, like if those three things are happening, there isn't really a more successful yeah. point of place to be in that isn't about sort of personal relationships and those things. But anything related to career-wise, if you have those three things, that's as good as it gets. I love that. And enjoy it. But how I would describe you to a stranger. Hmm. If it was to a stranger, that means I'd be presumably kind of gassing you up a little bit, right? Because I'm probably making an intro or something. Mm. So the stranger in this case would be like a potential like investor. I sort of hear you like, hey, we're doing this, another round. Like, And so I'm sort of like, oh, what's the founder like? So I would think about the context of what their expectations would be first, mm-hmm. right? Because I would think, here's all these admirable traits that I think I know about you, that I, that I, that I think are great. But what is the thing that's going to actually penetrate into a stranger's consciousness that makes Mm. them want to take a next step? And so what would be the ones that would actually elicit a call to action? So I would probably not necessarily describe the things that I think are your strongest points. I would describe the things that I think are the most rare in the context of you being a founder. Um, So that's where I would say sort of like the calm, humility, Mm. Um, and patience those as virtues just generically are fine but not particularly interesting Mm. I think where you sort of juxtapose that of like it's sort of like how I think about like Tom Brady right very handsome man there's male models that are way better looking but the fact that he's also the height of one uh-huh. thing with this other thing. You're like he's cross a, he's cross training a right. bit. Yeah. So I would probably think of it that way is thinking about all the sort of startup founders that I know, all the kind of negative archetypes that in many cases are sort right. of a feature, not a bug. Because right. the 
shadow venture markets were selecting of, yeah. for those things. And so I think of like uh, easily dem uh, demonstrable qualities that they would also see the first time, right? You also don't want to sort of describe someone to a stranger with observations that took you 10 years to get. Mm. Um, you want to do things where they'll feel like immediately sort of engaged in yeah, the, the, the puzzle. So I would prioritize towards uh, how you'd be different than most founders that, yeah. and then also towards um, what is something they're going to see in the first I really like that too because it's how I try and live my life. I'm a big believer in even, for example, what I do in Carrot, right? You know far more than I do about being a creator and being a YouTuber, right? Basically, everybody I interact with, especially here in LA, does. But <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. But sometimes I know a little bit more than they do on, well, you're an exception, but for many other creators relative to them, I know more than they do on the tech and venture and finance mm. side. Similarly, when I go meet with people coming from the finance side, bankers, right? Or people coming from financial technology or investors, they might know more than I do in those areas, but I know more than they do about creators. And I think I apply that not only to knowledge expertise POV, but from a personality POV, I do try and cultivate, hey, like, I wouldn't say well-rounded because that implies, oh, I'm just like this generic piece of like flat cardboard. But like, it actually means a lot to me. I do try and, hey, sure, I might be a founder, but I'm actually just as comfortable spending time here in LA with my friends who are creating right. as I am in the stereotypical where like founders go hang out with other founders and investors and bankers and like whatever. So that's interesting you said that. So that, that gave me an idea of how I would actually do this in the sure. scenario where I'm having drinks with, with someone in the VC community. They're being yeah. like, hey, what's, what are the cool startups you're hearing about? Okay, what's this founder like? So instead of describing you as like even keel, right? Which sure. could have sort of a pejorative as much as it elicits the sense of emotional stability. I'd be like, handles crisis really well, right? Hopefully. So you frame it into a narrative and especially in a way where those people know that anyone that's doing a, a startup of worth considering is going right. to go through adversity, right? Makes sense. Real calm in the face of adversity. That's a way of saying the same thing as even keel or like a, yes. a mild-mannered yeah, temperament or all those things. But it's framing it in this scenario that's inevitable for your line of work that's also something that sinks a lot of people in your position. I like that. I actually thought of for yourself the way I frame it too. I gave an answer initially, but I thought of another one, a renaissance man. <laughs> that's true. I do a lot of different stuff. Yeah, almost <laughs> in two in the classical sense, right? The renaissance individuals, they were all makers. Yeah. So not only from the versatility and breadth of what you do and the thoughtfulness, but also just the fact you actually in this day and age can in fact create and make. It's a phrase used around a bit, but I think for you it fits really well. A renaissance man. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Right. The, the, the sort of postmodern. <laughs> postmodern renaissance man. All right, let's do one more and we'll. Go for it. Tap it off. This is a good one. What, if anything, has this conversation taught you about yourself? Hmm. What has this conversation taught me about myself? Well, I think the 
it's so easy not, well, I think it comes down to sort of personality and temperament type, right? I have some friends that are, and I don't mean this to sound like a, an insult, but they love talking about themselves. Yeah, sure. I have other people that don't. I'm somewhere in the middle, but mostly not as interested in like sort of exploring the depths of, put it this way, I've never, I've never uh, made someone listen through a description of one of my dreams, right? Whereas mm. I know some people that if they have a thought, they're sharing it. Sure. So I think that's like a, a, it's a missed opportunity in the sense that maybe people don't get like the sort of inner workings of what you're sort of going through or doing. Right. But it's also a added benefit that when you do say something of significance, people listen. And so with my, so I think like the, the conversation we've had is like pretty consistent with the sort of approach I have to just about everything I do content wise. Yeah. I'm like one of the, like I, I've done a lot of YouTube videos and I rarely ever talk to the camera mm. and it's, I'm, and it's not from any sort of shyness. I'm actually very comfortable speaking in public, get me Certainly. live in a room. A lot of reps are teaching. It's just like in general, I don't enjoy it as much as just sort of like doing the work, letting the cameras roll, not having to plan it out, not having to script it, mm. just going more sort of natural. So I think these kind of conversations uh, or this conversation, it's it reminds me that I can do this. Mm. I don't have to do it. Um, but it's it's in even though it's not the thing I would enjoy doing the most because I don't do it that often, it becomes enjoyable. It's like that. Mm. It's like your third favorite cuisine. You might not have it like one third as often as your but, first but or second. But when you do. But when you do, mm. right? If you're only having it one out of, if it's your third favorite, yeah. but you only have it three times a year, it's going to over-index in enjoyment. Yeah, in that moment. Oh, I appreciate that. I think for me, well, first, before saying what I've learned about myself, I will say, I think, I think two or three things you've said are really just like philosophical. It's like die gloriously, make comfortable plans, move directionally. I think just great mantras <laughs> of what it means to be a human in this world and age well, that I love. I'm s there's a lot of hustle out there. Yes. And there's a lot of people telling you that to conquer your inner weaknesses you have to run ultra marathons or do crossfit every day or shoot 800 arrows at some sort of target with a compound bow and i'm not making fun of that like any pursuit that requires sort of dedication discipline and excellence is worth considering but it's worth considering not necessarily worth fanatically following yes um and I like a good kicking message of like, just get out of bed, make your bed, take a cold yeah. shower, run 800 miles, and then get to your day. Wake up every morning at 4.30. But also, sure, but only if it makes life better. Not 
it's not a guarantee that you can, the most disciplined I've ever been in my life isn't the most joyful. The most ambitious lists I made mm. of to-do lists or New Year's resolutions at the beginning of a year, my most ambitious to-do list didn't necessarily result in my most productive years. Mm. So you can be incredibly disciplined, focused, hardworking, cold showers, eating right, working out every day, and still be incredibly unfulfilled and unhappy. Or, and in some cases, the amount that you're sacrificing of comfort and enjoyment can overinflate your sort of expectations for progress. Mm -hmm. So you could do all these things right, but still only actually see your income or your business grow a tiny bit. Yep. And that can be as discouraging as these things are worth pursuing. Now, people say, oh, you should just do them for the love of the game and all that kind of stuff. But there's also something to be said about like sort of not over scheduling or over planning or overly trying to sort of sacrifice your way into sort of happiness. There's also some for just like sort of wandering your way into it, traveling okay. a little bit more, trying different things. Um, making a little bit more time to sort of hang out with the people you actually like the most um, rather than having your schedule dictate sort of socially convenient relationships. So I don't want to like sort of say that all of these things and decide discipline are bad, mm. but really consider, okay, let's say you do all these things, mm. do your cold plunge, you do your hundred mile runs, then what? Yeah. And I find that like, um, the more I work out, the harder it is to like stay on like a reasonable sort of uh, diet calorie wise. Yeah. So it's like the discipline in one area might actually expand problems in a different area, mm. not necessarily improve it. So there's one thing I, I sort of am seeing really pick up traction that's mostly right, but kind of can lead people, self included, or wrong is that kind of like, obsession with kind of discipline routine yeah. crushing it kill harder hustle how everyone's your competition if that makes you genuinely happier and more joyful mm. knock yourself out but um really question that because yeah i've done some of that and it's like yeah kind of didn't make my best friendships or relationships during during mm. those periods where i was so internally focused on killing it i like that i was gonna add this is the last point the other thing i think this conversation taught me about myself so ben you're actually one of my first internet friends and what i mean by that somebody that i've met online spoken with before but never actually met yeah you called we had a phone call yeah 2020 this yeah. is during covid yeah and you were kind of you had the cards out Oh You're God! Just I didn't get started. We were literally just getting started. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was an unusual call that I've had. What stood out for me from that call was the things I sort of described and how I would describe you was yeah, thank you. It was you weren't saying how this is going to be the biggest thing ever, right? And almost every startup founder I talked to. <laughs> The words, 
revolutionary, uh, disruptive industry killer, like all these things are thrown around as they're like trying to onboard their first hundred users or customers. And your description of what you're doing was so based around the problem and the opportunity of like, hey, the creator economy is growing. Yeah. This is going to be a big thing. This is not a flash in the pan. Pretty rock solid. Hmm. And we're going to create financial tools for those that class. I was like, well, that, that, yeah. that kind of makes sense. And you didn't have to have all the answers and you didn't pretend that you did. Yeah, thank you. I still don't. <laughs> no, no, it's like, but, it's like uh, my best pitch recently to investors for the kind of properties we're developing out in Joshua Tree and around some other national parks is just a question. Over the next like 10 to 20 years, do you think nature is going to get more valuable or less mm, valuable? More, absolutely. And right now, land around our national parks is not that expensive. Let's buy up a lot of it and build some really amazing properties that are very sustainable. And they're like, yeah, it wasn't like we're gonna build this brand and now think of like yeah. Soho House meets Raya, but with like all these influencers. Yeah. We didn't even mention any of like the kind of like media kind of like tie-ins that we can do with kind of having a bunch right. of uh, your brands influencers your sort of involved. Cause it's like that it's a good point, but we want to just lead with the simple part where it's like nature's going to get more valuable. It's never really gotten old. Yeah the more sophisticated our technology gets, it will only increase that value and the ability or it's sort of the esteem that it's held within. I love that. And not only did I also really enjoy that conversation too, because you were basically just a thought partner and just like, hey, thinking through here ways you could do this. And I'm like, wow, just learning more how you think was very valuable. But too, what it taught me is you're my first internet friends that I've now the transition to meet in person, I'm like, oh, this is lovely. <laughs> it's a new model for friendship, right? I'm like, oh, cool. This Un- is a thing. Underrated. So I'm, there's this kind of like myth that you, like, I think that's another sort of really destructive thing where people say sort of no new friends. No, always new mm-hmm. friends, but good good filters and good boundaries. Two of like my, my better friends, uh, one is like a is a well-known comedian. The other one's like a well-known artist. And they both met them through sort of Instagram. And it yeah. was through sort of finding commonalities, even though our work is very different. But we found commonalities in our kind of struggles and challenges and observations um, that led to sort of really great friendships in, in later in life. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Internet friends can be a good thing. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for making time today, man. This is my pleasure. Fun.